Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one laying around your feet somewhere. Please take that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift from us at Mission uh, to you. So the gospel that we've been going through, this truth that we've been going through through the book of Acts called Unstoppable God. We'll kind of continue that series here this morning, looking specifically at Acts chapter 8. And so I'm going to read a section of Acts chapter 8 and then kind of exegete the rest of it verbally here this morning as well. So Acts chapter 8, verses 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. It says this, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, who heard, had them, excuse me, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. In the late 1940s in China, there the Chinese government arose and declared that they were going to then remove Christianity as best as they possibly could from that country. They, as a government, began to remove all Christian and foreign missionaries, people that were claiming to be there as missionaries. They made them go back to America or to other countries where they were from. It was believed in that time, an estimation, that there were one million Christians in all of China. And the government's heartbeat was completely to eradicate from its belief system. Many people in the Western church and the Western world begin to question, well, Christianity is dead within China. What are we going to do, right? They've taken our leaders. They've taken the missionaries. They are taking our scriptures. And, and they begin to be amongst the true believers throughout this world, this questioning of, man, I guess it's done. I guess it's eradicated in this land. And yet, this is what happened. Believers, true believers within the country of China begin to lead themselves They began to proclaim themselves the the gospel, and, and, and they formed a network of house churches known as the Underground Church. And as that underground church that was mostly done in secret, what was phenomenal about this is that it began to grow, and throughout the 60s and 70s especially, it continued to endure great persecution. In 2010, the last estimate that I found, it is believed that there are now 159 million believers in China. 
by 2025, it, by all guesstimations, it is believed that there will be more believers in China than there are people who live in America. This is phenomenal to see that as the church was being bombarded, that as they prayed, as they proclaimed, and as they were persecuted, the church in China continues to grow and is probably the largest church or close to it in the world. And most of it not done with a church on every corner, but is done with inside Christian homes and in secret so that they can continue to meet. This is what we're seeing throughout the book of Acts, as we've talked over the last month or so now, is, is peering in and seeing that God is going to grow his church, that that is what he has done, and that is what he's going to continue to do. And the way that he does that is through prayer, persecution, and proclamation. Man, if, if you don't want to go through those things or experience those things, then Christianity is probably not for you. Because that is what we see taking place over and over and over and over and over again. And what we've been wrestling with as American Christians, especially over the last several weeks, is this idea that, man, we can pray and we need to be people of prayer. We have elder-led prayer this Wednesday night that's happening at my house. I encourage you to be at that. We can pray. We need to pray. We can proclaim, though Satan has convinced us all to be quiet, yet that's something that we can do, we should be participating in, and yet how do we as Christians in the American church who are currently not experiencing persecution continue to thrive as a body of believers? Last week we saw in the last chapter, in chapter 7, we met a deacon, a man that we first learned about him in chapter 6 of the book of Acts. And here in chapter 7 we see Stephen and hear Stephen's story as he is just, he's a lay person. Now we don't see that term in the scripture. That's a term that we as a church have kind of placed on all of you who are not vocational or um, pastors. We don't get paid to do this, right? We call that laity. I don't really like that term because I don't see it in Scripture. The reality is there are vocational ministers like myself, and there are ministers. That's who makes up the church. Even if you're not a pastor, you are a minister. And we see this guy named Stephen. He's a deacon. He's a servant. He's probably spent most of his time helping orphans and widows who have come to faith in Jesus. And we see in dramatic fashion that he begins to proclaim the gospel as a minister within the church, as one of you guys. And what happens? The Jewish leaders become extremely fed up with this as they claim that he is blaspheming. And all this does is spur within him the gospel to be even more truth as Stephen spits back at them the gospel of, me, of Jesus Christ and how that all of the Old Testament is pointing toward the person and work of Jesus. This enrages them. They take him outside the city, they strip themselves of their clothes, and they brutally stone Stephen to death. All the while, as we see in that passage, what is Stephen doing? He is looking at God, and to the right hand of God, he sees Jesus, who isn't sitting down, but is standing up, and you get this picture of saying, come on, come on, my son, welcome home, because that is the picture 
that we often see of Jesus and what he is doing. So we see this taking place, and immediately after the stoning of Stephen, what happens? It says this, and Saul approved of his execution. I mean, this is the equivalent of like Vader walking into the scene. Okay, we don't know much about this guy if you're a Star Wars junkie. We don't know much about this guy, but it starts out and boom, this, the man in black is on the scene. We'll spend the next several weeks actually talking about this guy named Saul. But specifically today, we see that all of this persecution is taking place. And it tells us here in verse 1, And on that day, at the day of Stephen's um, death, his martyrdom, um, that a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, when we see this, it's a scary scene. A man has just been killed. No one has been killed since Jesus for, for proclaiming Jesus. And now, one of these followers... Has just been brutally murdered. And what happens to the church? Now think what happens is when we first read this passage, we get this image that, uh, that, that they're scattering because they're simply scared. That they're running for their lives. Upon further study, if you were to study that word scattered, it is meaning scattered with a purpose. It literally means to be scattered like a seed for the sake of being planted. Right? So these, these people are going forth from Jerusalem, but they are doing so with a purposeful reason to be planted in those places and ultimately to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And so we see this very quickly. We are introduced again to a deacon. We learn about this guy in chapter 6. Um, he is listed amongst the seven deacons there. And in doing so, we learn about this guy named Philip. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about what? Preaching the word. So they, they leave, they gather up, then they scatter out to preach the gospel. And this is what Philip is doing. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So we, we see this taking place. We see people. We see ministers. We see people within the church. We see laity. We see members going forth from Jerusalem because the persecution. I think it's really interesting that the Bible tells us that the apostles stay in Jerusalem. And as they stay in Jerusalem, this guy named Saul is going from house to house and he is dragging believers out into the middle of the streets and is having them persecuted, possibly even killed. Why? Because they follow Jesus. So people are sent forth. The apostles, the, the leaders, the vocational guys stay in Jerusalem. I don't know why they stay there. I think it, uh, there's lots of reasons probably why of a central hub of the church of Jerusalem that God also wasn't there. He wasn't done yet in Jerusalem. It became a central location not only for Judaism but also for the early Church, And so we meet this guy named Philip. We don't know much about him except for he's a deacon, and yet he goes to Samaria, and in Samaria begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and performing signs. In doing so, if you were to keep reading there in verse 9, we meet that there is a man in Samaria. One of these guys is a, is a, uh, a magician. 
All right, his name is Simon. And Simon is there, and he begins to hear Philip preach, and in doing so, converts, believes, begins to follow after the person and work of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a, a new Christian before, okay? But they've not been around church long enough um, to figure everything out, right? So when I was at church camp, uh, and this boy, I think he got saved every year. We called him Wild Bill. And I've told this story before, but um, in the church, I grew up in a charismatic, real Pentecostal church, and so church camp meant you sat around all day long in the humidity doing absolutely nothing practically, and then you had church all night long for hours, all right? We're talking about 10-year-olds being in worship for them for hours, all right? And they would always have testimony service. You Baptists, did y'all ever have testimony service? All right, so testimony service, and people could just stand up at any moment and say something. It's always really nerve-wracking. That's why we don't do it here, <laughs> all right? Because I never know what people are going to say. And I remember the guy at the time, there would be a long line of these kids wanting to give testimony of what Jesus had done. And the guy asked him, um, they said, you know, wow, Bill, did, did you get saved tonight? And please excuse me, I'm going to try to use it in the correct term. Um, and the immediate response from this teenage boy was, hell yeah, I got saved. All right? So he, he hadn't been told yet, hey, we, we probably shouldn't say that. Okay, it was an awkward moment. We're all teenage kids going, <laughs> you know, laughing hysterically. And this is very similar to Simon. He's a magician. He begins to follow after Jesus, and yet he's not been told everything um, that he should or should not do yet. And so at one point, as you were to continue on later on in this, these passages, Simon sees Philip and these guys doing all of all of these signs and wonders and preaching the gospel. So Simon comes up to him and says, hey, how much does it cost for me to be able to do that? All right, he was trying to buy this ability. And, and the apostles, and because Peter and John kind of show up, they're like, man, what's going on in Samaria? And, and they kind of tell this new Christian, they're like, hey, dude, like, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. You need to repent of this. All right, you need to turn, and you need to follow after Jesus. So there is discipleship beginning to take place even inside of these new believers. Now, if we could continue on and read it for sake of time, we won't this morning, but in Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40, we continue to see Philip being led by the Holy Spirit to preach. And he is traveling from Jerusalem. God tells him to go to Gaza. And in doing so, he's on this road, and he comes across this guy who is an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch, and he is a governing official. He is the treasurer for the queen, Candace, of the, of the country of Ethiopia. It's believed that he was probably coming from Jerusalem, and Philip hears the book of Isaiah being read from this guy. He picked it up in Jerusalem, I guess, went to Lifeway over there in Jerusalem and got the scroll and on his way home is reading it as he rides in his chariot out loud. And God sends Philip to this man and he says, so, so man, uh, do you know what you're reading? 
Do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian is like, how can I understand this? And immediately, Philip begins to preach the gospel to this guy in the middle of the desert as he rides on his chariot. The guy even invites him to kind of sit with him on his chariot as they're leading him back home to Ethiopia. And, and, and Philip takes his time and he begins to show that what he's reading in the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. The Bible tells us that this Ethiopian, that he believes, and immediately in the desert, they see water. It's a miraculous picture here. And the guy goes, well, what's keeping me from being baptized? This is paraphrase. This is Eric Standard Version, ESV. As he looks at him and says, I mean, essentially nothing. And he baptizes this man. Right then on the spot, and then Philip continued on, I think, to Caesarea as the Spirit lead, led him to, to go up into that area and to continue to proclaim the gospel. Jesus saves him and continues to work inside of Philip's life as he proclaims the person and work of Jesus. Now, this is a, a very general synopsis. We told you we're going to move quickly through the book of Acts. It's a movement. We're probably, it's believed by this stage in the game, probably five or so plus years into the life of the church from Acts chapter 1 to this moment. It's probably five or six years. It's not eight days. Five or six years have taken place, and now the church is beginning to experience prayer, proclamation, persecution, but something else is majorly taking place, and that is the scattering for the reason of planting this church. This church. Now, some things this morning, quickly for us to kind of pick out from this passage of Scripture is this. Number one. The gospel was never meant to stay in Jerusalem. The gospel was never meant to stay in Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We've read this, I think, every week. But let's read it again. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to where? The ends of the earth. God said, when the Spirit comes, and they didn't know when it was going to come, but when this Spirit comes, the fruit of that will be the proclamation, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. However, ladies and gentlemen, by the time we get to, to, to Acts chapter 8, where is the church? Jerusalem. Five, six years in, the church is in Jerusalem. It's believed that most of the people that were there on Pentecost, even those who are converted, at, at still up until this point, just stayed put. So now within Jerusalem, there are, is a church of thousands, probably 20,000 
plus believers that, man, we don't, we don't want to leave this place. We're taking care of one another. People are selling stuff, giving to the poor. The widows are being taken care of. The orphans are being taken care of. The church is together. And if we leave here and go back to all of our native lands where we came from, then the church isn't there. So what happens? And this is the temptation for them, and it was the temptation for us. We see this all the way back in the book of Genesis. God comes to Abram, and he says, Abram, you're going to be a blessing. You're going to have a great nation from your lineage. The Messiah will come. You're going to be, he takes him out to the, the mountainside, lets him look at the stars, and there are going to be more people in your family than there are stars in the sky. But the blessing, this covenant I'm making with you and your children, is that you will go forth from that place, and then you will be a blessing to the rest of the world. And he says this. This is the nations of Israel. This is the mission of the Jews is to go be a blessing to the world. Man, if you've read through the Old Testament, it doesn't take very long to quit, uh, it, very long at all to realize this is nothing like what the Jews were doing. Read the book of Jonah. When the, the, the prophet's there, God is telling him to go and to witness and to proclaim to the people of Nineveh, and yet what does he do? He doesn't want to go there. He hates those people. Jonah is a racist. He does not want the gospel. He even says, I know if I go there and proclaim the gospel, if I start talking about Yahweh in the city of Nineveh, you're going to save them, and I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. So God does all kinds of weird things to Jonah to make him go do it. And Jonah still, by the end of the book, is like a little kid pouting under a bush that God creates to give him shade pouting. Right? This is the story of the Israelites. And we peek into the New Testament and what has become the temptation of the New Testament church? To stay put. God has given us a mission. He has given us a vision. He has declared that we are to go and to make disciples of all nations. So this is what begins to happen. Is murder a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. It's bad. All right? And in no way am I saying that this murder of Stephen was good. It is a bad thing. It is murder. However, I want you to see the flip side of the coin is, is according to Romans chapter 8, that God is in the process of taking bad things that are legitimately bad and making them good. And so what does God do? The enemy thinks he's got us. He's keeping the New Testament church silent. Great things are happening within Jerusalem, but this thing isn't spreading out. All right, they, we, they, we like to huddle as Christians. We like to huddle up. We want it to be as easy. Being a follower of Jesus is, is really difficult. It's even difficult with inside of the church. And our temptation is to kind of circle up, get our little group of Christian friends, and kind of just navigate through and, and kind of you know, run interference for one another and all of these sorts of things. And yet, what does God do? God takes a bad thing, a horrific thing, a wretched thing, a, a thing of, of man getting beaten to death with stones and being bashed in the head with boulders. He takes this evil thing from Satan, from hell itself, and he makes it good. And what does he do? He causes this persecution and the death of this man to, to cause those believers to scatter. 
and to do what he initially said to do all the way back in Acts chapter 1. And that was for them to go and be a witness to the world. And God used. Stephen's death was not wasted. It was glorious. We see this same picture in the cross of Jesus, something that was wretched. The cross is evil. It is satanic. It is from hell itself. And yet, what does God do? He orchestrates it, turns the schemes of the evil one into the schemes of glory. This is the picture that we see, not only in Jesus, but also in these New Testament stories as this begins to happen. Man, Mission Church, this can be our temptation as well. Did you know that if, in, if you were to, in a lot of cases, that there are many churches, maybe even this one, I pray that it's not, where people legitimately do not want their church to grow? They don't want it to grow. They don't want new people coming in. They don't want it to be multicultural or transcultural. They, they, they don't want to um, open up their homes. They, they want to be in a tight little group, and, and they don't want to expand. They don't want to get to know more people. Man, we want our church to be small. We don't, I hear this a lot. Man, I, I don't like going to a big church. You know, I want to go to a small church. And there's nothing wrong with a small church, nothing wrong with a big church if both of them are gospel-centered and gospel-proclaiming. But I want you to understand there is something wrong with that kind of mentality. See, it, it, it bothers me that these chairs are empty. It does. It, it bothers me. Now, simultaneously, I'm so excited that you are here. Okay? But, but I'm simultaneously, God has called us to proclaim, to witness, to expand, to have open arms. Did you know that for the last two and a half years, our church provides a free meal for every poor person and every wealthy person and every person in between in our city? Don't tell me we're not missional. Because it's a lie. The thing is, is that are we using those opportunities in which they were originally created, missional community groups, for those very purposes? We don't close those groups. Those groups are always open. I mean, if you were driving to my house and there's a homeless dude, and you're not a girl, all right, or you got a man with you, all right, and you are driving to my house, there's a homeless person, pick them up, bring them to my house. We've done it for two and a half years. That's always been the mentality. But very few of us have taken advantage of it. Why? It's because, man, man, do I really want to let somebody in my house I don't know? Like, they're not going to bring a dish and a drink. Well, y'all don't bring drinks anyway, so we're not going to bring a dish. They're not going to bring a dish, and so, I don't know. Maybe they smell. What if their kids are crazy? All right? Your kids are crazy. We let you come. All right? So uh, the mentality of the gospel is always open-armed. The uh, mentality of the gospel is go and get. Go and proclaim. Let's attack the darkness. Uh, we have a tendency as a group of American Christians uh, when we are tempted to just huddle up and, and stay and for the sake of, of our own good, we have a tendency to, to drift into isolation and seclusion and comfort. 
And these are the same things that are happening in the early church. Man, I pray that God uses whatever mentality, whatever method he needs to for us to be allowed to be a part of his mission for Bowling Green. And it, it, even if that means taking me out as the pastor. I, I want to see God use our congregation. And please don't excuse our lack of obedience sometimes on God. Because God is saying go. He said go since Acts. Since the end of the Gospels even. As Jesus says go, make disciples. Mission Church, go and make disciples. These are to, to the mentality is one of proclamation. You know, the world um, this week, especially in American Christianity, they begin to kind of get a little bit hesitant about what's going on in America. Uh, the Pew Survey, if you've read anything about this, is the major statistical polling group. I bet every pastor in America is probably saying something about that this week. But uh, this new poll survey came out about the state of American Christianity. And all, all of a sudden, at first glance, if you really didn't read the information or study the statisticians, um, you would have quickly thought, man, the world, uh, the Christian, Christianity, the church in America is falling apart. It's declining. But you know what? Man, there are great articles about there if, that explain all of this information. I'm not going to go into all of it this morning because you'll fall asleep. Now, me and Justin would be like, oh my gosh, that's cool. Or, uh, y'all be like, eh. okay. So, but here's the deal. It broke it down into two major groups, evangelicals and mainstream Protestants. So evangelical Protestants, mainstream Protestants. Evangelical Protestants, these are us. These are people that have a high view of Scripture, a high view of the person and work of Jesus. You need to repent, turn, follow after Jesus to be saved. That's evangelicals. We are evangelical. Mission Church is an evangelical church. Mainstream Protestants have a tendency to be a little bit more liberal in their understanding, a little bit more open in their viewpoints of certain things. And when you begin to read these studies and look at these, st uh, these statistics, what you quickly realize is this, is something is happening in America. And there is a downward spiral toward one of those groups. Liberal, nominal, cultural Christianity is plummeting in America. Yet on the flip side of that, those who have a deep desire to worship Jesus, those who have a deep desire to proclaim the gospel, those who have a high view of Scripture, a high view of the person and work of Jesus, we are seeing, yes, ebbs and flows, but that tra trajectory is actually going up. See, what's taking place is nominal Christianity is dying in America. Okay? L more and more people, if you do surveys, are checking nothing or other in their belief systems. They finally come to realize what preachers have been saying for years is that everyone who goes to church and lives in the South and eats Captain D's at Pocklucks at church aren't Christians. And so we've been saying that for years, but also those people are beginning to realize, you know, if I just say I believe in Jesus, but he doesn't saturate all of my life, then guess what? I'm not a follower of Jesus. 
And that is what we're seeing take place. It's going to continue. People who are the remnant of God's church. We've talked about this in the book of Romans. Those who are true followers of Jesus. I want you to know that is growing amongst American populations. We'll say things like, man, the church in America is plateauing and declining. And to some degree, there is some truth to that. But here's what, this is not thus saith the Lord, this is thus saith Eric Baker, okay? Is the reason for that is those who have been attending for a lot of years but weren't Christians aren't going anymore. Okay? They're staying at home. Sunday fun day. They're not involved. We as the church are not called to just group up, but we as the church are called to Go forth, spreading this gospel, proclaiming the message and the work of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus is looking at Peter, right? We've said this a lot, this, this sermon series too. It is upon this rock, and Jesus is talking about himself. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the second statement that is after that is this. And the gates of hell will not what? Prevail against it. Have you ever thought about that passage? The gates of hell. We get this picture of like all the my life, really, of of okay, well, that means like the enemy is on attack and and, and he is, all right? But Jesus specifically says in this passage, declaring that the gates of hell, that means that the gates are over there. I mean, who attacks a country in war with their gates? What's happening here? God's glory, God's gospel, God's mission is attacking the gates of hell. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the church is on the offensive. The church is attacking hell itself. The church is supposed to be going after sin, Satan, and death. And when they get to its most holy city of hell itself, it cannot prevail. They cannot keep us as believers in the Spirit of God. They cannot keep the message and the person and work of Jesus from building his church. We will conquer it through Jesus. But the tendency is what? For us to sit back. We gotta wait. The church is always on offense. We've been playing defense long enough. We've been waiting for something catastrophic to finally happen in America before we start acting like Christians. And the gospel is constantly comparing. He says, that, man, the catastrophic happened. It happened in Genesis chapter 3. And since then, we as believers have a responsibility and a job to do in the proclamation of this gospel, in the proclamation of the truth. Man, this will not be easy. Church, over the next course of the next 50 years, we have a desire to see God plant through this church and through partnering with other churches, a hundred churches throughout the world. Right now, in Bowling Green, Kentucky, I'm completely convinced that we could at least plant seven of those in this city and county. Big dream, yeah. Is it going to be easy? Nope. Going to take a lot of people? Yep. Going to take some money? 
Yep, but it's going to take people who have Holy Ghost boldness, that have seen Jesus so much that they are proclaiming Jesus at all costs to friends, family members, and neighbors. The gospel was never meant to stay in Jerusalem. The gospel was always meant to go. And we know, we know that, guess what? They got it. Because we're here. Thousands of years later, there was a remnant of those believers that truly understood this. And because of it, we stand here today as well. Number two, the spreading of the gospel is not about vocational pastors, but the members of the local church. The spreading of the gospel is not about vocational pastors, but the members of the local church. What do we learn about Philip? Church guy. Not a vocational pastor. A guy in a church. He's a Brian Becker. He's a Matt. He's an Adam. He's a guy. Servant. Gifted. Valuable to this congregation. He's uh, it could be a gal. We could mention the gals in this room, but we, we aren't talking. This isn't Peter that's going to do this. What we will see through the book of Acts is over and over and over again, God using ordinary men and women, not just the vocational guys, in the spreading of the gospel. The, the, is it my responsibility as a believer to proclaim? Yes. Is it my responsibility as a believer to evangelize? Yes. But you know what my primary responsibility, Pastor Justin's primary responsibility, is to equip you to go and do the work of the ministry. But man, what if we create an American culture? Well, that's what we pay the guy to do. Like if the, if, if the church crashes or fails or grows, what do we do? We automatically look at the guy or guys and say, man, our pastor was awesome. Look. All right? I don't know what this says about us. <laughs> pastor Justin, it's your fault, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do is we're always blaming it on somebody. If it goes awesome, it's our pastor. He's awesome. If it crumbles, something like 4,000 churches in America crash and burn every year. Supposedly 77 of them die or something like every day or something crazy. Whose fault was that, pastors? In some cases, you know what? You're exactly right. You're right. But what we see in this passage is, is that the spreading of the gospel is, is not primarily about us getting everything right and us doing all the work the reality is the gospel is about us you me all living faithfully private and publicly for the sake of the gospel this guy wasn't seminary trained i'm sure he didn't go to a five different workshops on sharing jesus without fear those aren't bad things we failed him here for mission the church that is filled with people who are engaged in mission, understand the value of pastors, but also that the church is built upon Jesus, that he builds the church, and secondly, that it is the responsibility of every believer to be preaching the gospel. Who have you preached the gospel to this week? Who have you shared the gospel with? And I'm not, how many of you guys have said the name of Jesus in public this week? And I'm not talking about the cuss version of his name. This is the call of ministry. It is the call of every believer that is in this room. 
And then that is the responsibility of everyone. And then from there, he's also going to give us specifics. Like some of you, man, you're going to be all about adoption. Some of you are going to be all about helping homeless people. And you can't say that it is the responsibility of everyone to be what he has called you to do in those areas. Okay? But he has called everyone to the proclamation of this gospel. Wars are one in the trench, not in a boardroom, not sitting around. We have created this American culture, church culture, of celebrity preachers and worship leaders and, and all of these things. We kind of pay a guy to stand up front like I am, like a bobblehead, and, and talk and try to motivate you and, and, and try to speak to you and try to encourage you and all these sorts of things. And yet the responsibility of, of proclamation is not just for me, but it is for you. Every one of our, us are valuable in doing this. Let me say this to you. A multiplying church is one where everyone in it takes responsibilities for the church, and most importantly, in the sharing of the gospel where he or she lives, works, and recreates. The role of the pastor is to pray, to care, to teach, and equip you to do what God has called you to do. I can't make you do anything. I can train you. I pray for you. Pastor Justin, train you, pray for you, encourage you, teach you the Bible. But it's going to take the Holy Spirit and you being obedient to the calling that he has placed upon your life. The last thing is this. What do we see from this chapter? Is that the gospel goes everywhere. The gospel goes everywhere. I think I have a slide. If you'll hit it real quick, it's a map. Megan, I'm sorry I didn't tell you before I started this. Right here. All right, so this is, this is a map. And so um, down there or right there in the center, you see the city of Jerusalem. That's where the church is, right? And God tells uh, Philip, this lay guy, this member, this average Joe, this servant within the church, he tells him to go where? <coughs> Excuse me. He tells him to go to Samaria. Samaria is about 30 miles to 35 miles north of Jerusalem, okay? But here's what's interesting about this first calling that God places upon his life. The Jews hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered to be half-breeds by the Jews, what happened several hundred years before that, the Assyrians came to Samaria, overtook it, and took most of the Jewish believers living in Samaria and took them back to Assyria. But they, there were a remnant left there, and there were also now Assyrians there. So these Jewish people started marrying Assyrians, and they started, these people are Jewish, these people are pagan, and so now we're like Jewish pagan people. They even built a rivaling temple in Samaria. This story is kind of talked about or alluded to um, when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and they're talking about where do we worship? Is it on this mountain or this mountain? That's what's happening here. This is what's happening. And the, the Jews could not stand these people. They were not pure. All right? Let me get this really quick. This is, uh, this is for free. Jesus is totally cool with interracial marrying. I would even conclude that he supports it. But Jesus is not cool for non-believers and believers in Jesus marrying. 
This causes major conflict. It should not even be an option. Like, you don't even have girls. You don't have coffee with those guys. They're, they're, they're not an option. God wants believers to be yoked with believers. Now, he doesn't care what color they are, what language they speak, but does that man or that gal, do they love Jesus? Are they passionately pursuing after Jesus? And if they don't, then God is not cool with that. It causes major, major issues. The Jews hated the Samaritans so much that if they were going north, it was a two-day journey through Samaria to go to, like, Galilee, all right? They would take an extra four days and walk around Samaria because they didn't want to even touch foot near that place. They hated those people so bad. And where does God call him to go? Samaria. He calls them to these people. The second thing that we see inside of Samaria as Philip is there is he comes across a dude that's a magician. All right? I don't know if you've seen Chris Angel, Mind Freak, all right? or David Copperfield, or any of those. Those people are freaky. Right? And we're talking probably even into mystical magic, black magic, satanic magic, if you will. And yet what happens? Jesus saves one of the, I mean, a, a circus sideshow freak. And what does Jesus do? He saves many Samaritans. He even saves one of them that if, if he was to walk in here today, we'd probably be really freaked out by him. The next thing that we see is that from Samaria, God tells Philip now, all right, I, I, I want you to go to Gaza. Look at where Gaza is. All right? And all of that even says the desert road. So he goes back to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem goes across the desert to Gaza to preach the gospel and comes across a guy who is an Ethiopian. An Ethiopian. He is also a eunuch. Now what does that mean? This guy was the treasurer for the queen. Meaning that he had great trustworthy, but he was also extremely wealthy himself. He also had great power. This was probably a person of a different skin color. But in that time, especially in Ethiopia, what a king would do for people who were surrounded around his queen is he would make them castrate themselves so that they could not be involved in sexual immorality with his queen or any of his other brides or concubines. So Philip and this guy must have had a longer conversation than what we have here in Scripture. But obviously he tells him, we know that this guy is a eunuch. So he's probably a different race. He is sexually different. He is wealthy. He also must be educated. Why? He's reading Isaiah. For you to be able to read during this time says much about you. All right? 
And this is the picture that we, we see here, of, and he's reading again Isaiah chapter 53, which was one of the most messianic um, prophetic pieces of Scripture that we see in all of the New Testament. And, and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Philip is able to share the gospel with him, because why? It is all about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus. All the Old Testament is all about Jesus. All the scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. Jesus is to saturate all of life. And Philip begins to explain this. He preaches to the man. And they're in the middle of the desert, and all of a sudden there's water. And they baptize this man. See, after that moment, the Bible tells us later on there at the very end in verse 40 that after he preaches the gospel there in Gaza, he tells him to go to Caesarea. And that's where he goes and preaches next. Now, if I'm just looking at this map, couldn't Jesus have done this a little bit quicker route? <laughs> up, down, up, down, up. I mean, desert, Samaria, Caesarea... Here's the deal. God is sometimes going to lead us through desert places to get us to glorious places. I don't know, but sometimes in my life I'm like, God, what are you doing? What is going on here? This is a desert place. Even spiritually, I can be in a desert place. God, are you hearing my cries? Are you listening to my prayers? Are you hearing me on this day? What, what is going on here? What's taking place? What's going on in my home? What's going on at Mission Church and in the lives of these people? And, and this is in a desert place. And sometimes God leads us to those moments. We have seen early on in the book of Acts that, you know what God is cool with? God is totally cool with saving thousands of people at once. We see that, right? Peter stands up. That's 120 of them. Hey, you're, you killed Jesus. Repent. And people are like, I killed Jesus. I mean, I, I wish the Holy Spirit would give me that opportunity to do that. All right, you're a terrible, despicable, wretched people. You need Jesus. You're right, I am. I need Jesus. I'm a terrible person. And then thousands of people come. What an experience. And we see that taking place over and over and over in the book of Acts. And yet, what do we see taking place here? Jesus, and in, in kingdom economics, will go to lavish amounts in the pursuit of one lost sheep. Of one. He takes Philip to a desert. And he meets a, a wealthy Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch. Well-educated man. What a description of American culture multicultural, well-educated, wealthy. And also, along with that, how is the church going to engage people who are, are wrestling or who have major issues with their sexuality? That 
that's the land in which we live. See, man, I, I think it would be awesome for us as Mission Church to see thousands of people. I, I want you to know that's, man, if you don't want to be a part of a big church, man, I don't think you want to be a part of the church because the, the church is like bazillions of people. And you're going to spend all of eternity, if you're a believer, with bazillions of believers worshiping after God. And man, I pray if God would use us in that manner to see millions of people come to know Jesus in a true and authentic way, then God do so. But Mission Church, may we not be confused in listening to the whispers of the enemy. Because God is as passionate about seeing one come as he is 100 million. Over the course, I want you to get this. Over the course, you need to get this mentality. Over the course of our two and a half years of existence, we've had three people that I know make professions of faith in Jesus. And you need to get this. And you need to preach this to your pastors. Over the course of the last two and a half years, too, we've probably spent close to, um, if this year, if we meet our budget, it'll be $200,000. We've seen three people profess Jesus. Some people would look at that and they would say, man, that's an expensive failure. But I want you to get the gospel. The gospel is, is everyone after the first one was just that much more grace in our lives. If this church was to close its doors today, none of us could ever say it was a failure. Because if God came after one and wrecked one for the sake of his gospel, then that 200,000, that setting up, tearing down, all right, the battles that you and I have waged in, the difficulties that we've had, the rejoicing that we've had, the celebrations that we've had, the weddings that we've had, the babies being born that we have, all of those things, the, the baptizing of those three people, all of that, I want you to know from in view of the gospel, this has all been worth it. And yet he is not finished with us yet. He is not done with us yet. I can't tell you over the last several weeks how many conversations I've had with people in our church who are having gospel conversations with people who aren't Christians. Literally the other day, uh, Frank called me. He's like, man, you won't believe what happened. I was working. We were talking to this guy's in the mine, several probably hundreds of feet underneath the ground, and a guy practically walked up to me and said, so um, I, he's not a Christian, um, but he's like, man, i got a bunch of questions about what it means to be a Christian. Conversations after conversations, text messages I'm getting, uh, you know, uh, emails that I'm getting of just conversations that you are having with non-Christians or de-churched people. And I can't tell you how excited I am for that. May God continue to increase that within our lives. May we begin to see gospel fruit taking place within these people's lives, within our lives. May we proclaim the gospel. May, may you get this as well today. Just like Jesus will go after, you know, mixed religious people. And these things still go on today. If you go to Haiti, there's this nasty religion that mixes Christianity with voodoo. All right? These things are still taking place. It takes place in America. We don't even really have names for it. And if God can save a group of people like that, 
if God can save a magician that's probably into paganism or witchcraft or whatever it is, if God can save the, uh, a man of a different race, a wealthy man, a man with, with, uh, dealing with uh, even physical ailments, an educated man, if God can save those men, uh, God can save you. And God can save me. That God is right there. That Jesus is right there. The gospel is for everyone. May we proclaim it. May we teach it. You're not here this morning by chance. You are here by divine appointment. To hear such the things as this. To sing these songs. To be gathered with this group of people. And yet, church... We have a responsibility for those of us who truly believe. The fruit of belief is proclamation. And so may we not be celebrity preachers. May we be faithful members and ministers of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for this time together. We thank you for this opportunity to worship and to glorify your name and to make much of you, Jesus.